0: Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And this week, we are talking about sensitive badasses. The type that'll get their hands dirty, do what's gotta be done, and hey, they'll feel bad about it too, Damn it! So, uh, (laughs) Rob, I know there's a, uh, a specific sensitive badass that you've been thinking about lately. And, uh, he's from The Expanse, a great show, and also great book series, great for different reasons. Um, and and I want I want to let you take it away. Wh- who's your sensitive badass that's got you thinking about this?
1: Yeah, I think my arc with watching The Expanse and this is continued in the season 3 is just a deepening appreciation for what a good actor and character um Amos is in yeah. the uh sci-fi Expanse. Well, Formerly sci-fi, hopefully soon to be Amazon, uh, expanse. But no, because Amos is this character who's played by West Chatham, uh, who, and I'm I'm assuming that's how how it's pronounced because it's it's how we pronounce the town in New England. So hopefully, <laughs> uh, hopefully I didn't botch that. But anyway, um, like Amos starts out the expanse as the like very stereotypical, uh, violent, unstable goon in a lot of ways. That's how he comes across. That's the sort of origins of the character. And there are things done early on that maybe subvert that a little bit and like hint that there's a lot that goes on beneath the surface of Amos. But over the course of these three seasons, they've started bringing out that sort of suppressed sensitivity. Um, They've had that bubbling up more and more to the fore. And it's interesting watching this, this actor uh, sort of, playing the part of somebody who is, like, still trying to actively suppress that stuff and keep it in check, yeah. but is also continually getting, like, ambushed by his own growing empathy and concern and fear, in fact, that, like, he is an agent of violence that is, like, infecting other people. And uh an arc in season three is that, as we've seen this happen a little bit before in the show, but it's definitely happening uh with in in this season there are characters now who are like falling under amos's influence and are sort of modeling behaviors that they've seen him do yeah and there's like his deep ambivalence about that right like there are moments where he is te- he is trying to teach people like how to survive in this world but all his lessons are lessons that he wish he'd never learned and feels bad about passing on. And so it's really interesting watching this character who is like one of the most lethal characters on the show and like in the first couple seasons was like actively scary because he did not know what he was capable of uh, when, when pressed. It is cool watching him sort of trying to reckon with like what he increasingly views as ways that he is broken or dysfunctional. For his lack of empathy or c- capacity for violence, and that is making him one of the most human and empathetic characters on the show, and it's it's utterly fascinating to watch. And it got me thinking about like what a what a compelling archetype this is. Like how how much how much I enjoy watching these versions of characters that are classically masculine heroes, uh, sort of trying to wrestle with the toxic masculinity that they embody.
0: Yeah, I, absolutely, and and even on the on the subject of of um, of Amos, I I you know you know here I love the show The Expanse. Uh, I have not started season three yet because I've actually been reading the books. I'm in book three right now, and things are fairly different. Uh, the broad strokes are very very similar. The story structure is similar, uh, but they make a lot of sort of wise decisions i think the show might be better than the books but i still really enjoy the books uh it's one of those rare cases where the book's writers got involved in the show and sort of went in and made some changes early on to weaknesses early in the story i think like the first book is really compelling and also like so white dude and yeah uh, the show to to I, I don't think the show feels overwhelmingly white, dude. They put Avicerella right in the first season. They put uh Bobby sort of much earlier on and, and all kinds of good stuff. So there's there's a lot more uh sort of even keel uh to the to the show, I feel like. But Amos uh in the books is like this sort of like, you know bald buff uh, mechanic and he's very very you know very gruff very you know he's he's like really hot on the show which is almost a little distracting everybody on the show is hotter than they're described in the books which is also like it's a little bit tv but it's also a little funny uh to kind of think about this
1: amos is like gorgeous
0: hot there's that scene and i think it may be in the first season where he's just sort of running around with his jumpsuit like half off like he just sort of, he's just sort of wearing it as pants and they're real low. Like they are super low. And it's just like, he can, he can run around the spaceship like that all day. That's fine. Like, please, please do so. And it's just sort of like the way he just, he's described in the, in the books is just like this, like, just sort of meathead guy. who's just like, you know, not, he does he's not described as like Mr. Sexy Pants. Um, he's also, there's also a crucial thing in the books that they have sort of hinted at, uh, in this show, at least in the first two seasons. Again, I haven't seen the third yet. Uh, but his backstory is like extremely tragic and extremely, uh, sensitive and tough. And I, I won't go into it, uh, especially if like the the show is not sort of using that as canon. There is a hint of it. There's,
1: there's definitely hints of it. Like yeah. there, there are a lot of hints that he may have been like exploited or abused, uh, as yeah. a child. So like there are, There are some hints of some dark stuff. Uh, There's also, like, another cool thing that this character is used for is he shows a lot of, like, empathy and respect for sex work and sex workers. Yes, Um, absolutely. Like, for him, it is a job like any other in this universe. Yeah. And sort of his... More honest
0: than most. That's kind of the way... That's his line where he's looking out for somebody... Uh, at, at one point, it, sort of early on, he's looking out for a sex worker, and uh, is, you know, kind of goes to his buddy. He kind of goes to Alex. He's like more honest than most, you know. Yeah, that's the job. So, yeah.
1: But yeah, it's it's a, just a really interesting performance, and the things that are hinted at, and the things that are sort of like suppressed, but you see him wrestling, like struggling with uh, the suppression or or how to express something. Uh, it's it's really fascinating and it's an interesting, it's interesting to me, like how I think this is maybe turning into out, like, I don't know, this, this, this feels a little bit like a generational thing, right? Like this feels a very little bit like 30 or 40 years ago. This is a character played by a Humphrey Bogart type actor. Uh, Okay, not (laughs) thirty years ago, Jesus. Uh, Sixty years ago, this is played by like (laughs) Humphrey Bogart. Uh, Maybe thirty years ago, it's like Clint Eastwood or or something like that. But you know, very very taciturn, uh, very stoic to the point of like not admitting there's a not showing there's a struggle at all. Um, Which characters that kind of embrace uh, their capacity for violence and don't reflect on it very much, and it feels like at least for a lot of a, a lot of media being made now, uh, there's a little, there, there tends to be just a little bit more reflection, I think, uh, in some of these tough guy archetypes.
0: Yeah. And certainly in, uh, you know, pieces of media that are a little bit more reflective uh, in general, or a little bit more thoughtful in general, very much. I think as a response to the sort of eighties action hero archetype, like, guys or ladies in some cases, but a lot of times this is sort of a uh, men who embody toxic masculinity, but they're not happy about it. Uh, which, yeah. <laughs> I sort almost of a-
1: feel like the sort of reflexive, <clears throat> sorry, the sort of reflexive, unfeeling badass archetypes increasingly being led. Uh, by women, I mean, like for the dynamic on the and this is not a one for one comparison it 's a very different kind of show, but the dynamic on the Americans, for instance yeah we all know who the more ruthless killer is, right? <laughs> yeah. We all know who the more uh capable of violence character is um and and better at just sort of carrying on with it, uh whatever the cost, and I feel like a lot of action movies. Also, like a, a lot of ones being sort of led by, uh, you know, tough women. A lot of them, the impression I get is that like they are increasingly the new like um, power fantasy badasses. Whereas yeah. like the right now the I just watched John Wick the other day. Yes, he's very sad about his dog. Like that entire like he's he's, he's the saddest killer. Like that entire movie is like about grief and anger and alienation following like a struggle with a loved one's long illness.
0: Yeah, he's a sad dude. And like the whole thing, you know, the whole inciting incident, nothing would have happened if it weren't for that poor little puppy. Like what more of a symbol of like fragility Mm -hmm. and, you know, especially in America, like. If it were a cat, nobody would care. And that makes me very sad. Uh, But, well, some of us would care. Some of us on the internet would care. But, like, the ultimate uh, thing to make a man sensitive is a pet, is a dog. The man's best friend, you know, kind of thing. Like, you know, a poor little puppy. Yeah. And we're all distraught over it, as is John Wick. And so, of course, that makes it, like, completely okay for him to kill, you know, reams and reams of people. (laughs) But also, they're all assassins and, I guess, there's a whole other sort of thing going on there um also in in that vein uh something i wanted to talk about of course because i'll I'll never not want to talk about it is farscape which definitely has a uh a, a thoughtful sad badass at its center especially in its in its best episode so farscape Uh, You know, being the best thing ever of all time. My favorite thing of all time. It's fine uh, if it's not the best, but it is my favorite. Very much played with the dynamic also that you're talking about. The like badass lady, like the woman who is the more capable soldier, the more highly trained soldier, the more, you know, capable killer and badass. And she's physically stronger than him. She can like, you know, throw things that are bigger than him she has a relationship with him and he likes to talk about feelings and he cries and he talks about sort of the value of you need to get your feelings out and kind of this very, he's very much like John Creighton is very much sort of the nineties man who is trying to be in touch with his feelings, but also he has a gun named Winona and he gets to be a badass, and he gets to walk around and put things like shades on his face when he's walking around slow motion and wears a leather jacket and all those other things. He gets to kind of do Both ways. He kind of gets it both ways, which I find very interesting. He knows he's kind of an action hero and living in this wild fantasy that he's always thought about in his life. But he's also sad, especially when bad things happen to the people that he loves. And he also thinks that uh, you should talk it out when you have bad feelings about things.
1: There are entire
0: episodes that are just about how much he'd rather talk about his feelings than fight with people that like the infamous uh, roadrunner episode in the third season. Avenging oh angel is all about that. <laughs> it's like, he just wants Which to talk about his feelings is
1: one of the greatest episodes of television ever. Like oh, it is so worth good. the price of admission of getting into Farscape to understand why that episode is so good because it is one yes. of the greatest. Like it is like a masterclass in how you end up doing some really serious dramatic work through the lens of slapstick farce.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um
1: God, I fucking love that episode. But oh, yeah. uh no, that's that's a great one. This because it's literally about like him trying to deal with this voice in his head that's always like, just be a badass. Just fucking kill your enemy. Like destroy him. And yeah. him trying to cling to that sort of softer side, right? Where he's like, no, that's that's my friend. Like I'm not going to I'm not going to let, like, whatever's happening, like, become poisoned by further violence. Yeah. It's great. And could uh, wouldn't
0: do it, you know?
1: Oh, uh, he, he made Priceline <laughs> commercials.
0: Ha <laughs> ha! Yes!
1: Uh, oh, I love that show. Sorry. But there's another interesting, there's there's a great episode uh, that I remember. This might be all the way back in the first season. It's one of the many times people try to sort of brain jack uh, Crichton. Mm-hmm. And it's one where he is, like, suffering, he's under the delusion that he's talking to his mother.
0: Oh, And she is
1: sick, and she is dying and wasting away before his eyes. Yeah. But he's trying to tell her what he's been through, and he can't. And she intuits that since he last saw her, he has become a killer. Yes. And I think he just starts weeping at that point because like also there's some really nightmare stuff that happens and the scene ends with him I think on the floor basically crying like this is cruel this is cruel
0: yes um,
1: which I mean Jesus what a, great, what a great show what a great performance that uh, Ben
0: <laughs> Ben Browder,
1: ben Browder uh, turns in it's tremendous but it is, it is interesting because you're totally right that show 100% has it both ways he is there are episodes where the violence is real and has meaning and there are episodes where it a hundred percent does not. There are episodes where he and Aaron blow through tons of whatever those shitty B team uh scaring are. Um, <laughs> where they, like just just mowing dudes down with their laser pistols and looking cool. And then there are episodes where they are really intensely wrestling with the cost of violence and the growing bloodiness of sort of their campaign to stay free and, and keep these keep various secrets of super weapons out of the wrong people's hands. Uh, and so it's an interesting thing because like there are times like that show veers between like, ah, he's a Nathan Drake type character and like none of this has any real weight. And then they'll circle back and they'll be like, but actually no, he, he, it totally does have weight. Uh, which I think is a, Varscape's interesting because it, it, it does sort of go both routes. Uh, and I think it does it pretty successfully. I think most other media I see, they just kind of choose one or the other. Like Nathan Drake, with the exception of like those, those rare moments where somebody is like, you know, how many people you killed today, Drake, we're, we're the same.
0: Well, not so different, you and I. Yeah, yeah
1: exactly. <laughs> but I think most things do kind of make a choice about, is the violence real in this world? In the expanse it 100% is. Yes. Um, But I think the other archetype for a lot of, like, action heroes is sort of the, um, oh, who's the Guardians of the Galaxy dude?
0: Oh. Pratt, Chris Pratt. Yeah, yeah.
1: Where just, like, just a goofy slacker, having fun, killing loads of people. Yeah. Which uh, feels kind of a different thing.
0: Yeah, I actually, it's funny. We, we can get into it with our weekend projects, but I, uh, I, I just watched both Guardians of the Galaxy Part 2 and Thor Ragnarok, and boy, do I have feelings Uh about,
1: I, Boy, I do too. Ha
0: <laughs> Good! Um,
1: I don't know, I mean, it might be relevant to this chat, though.
0: Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. So I'll, I'll just focus on that aspect, and then it'll, we can also uh, talk a little bit more in endorsements about perhaps Thor Ragnarok, but... Thor's a little bit of a sensitive badass. Yes. A little bit. Now, nowhere near the degree of the, of the John Crichton weeping on the floor uh, kind of thing. <laughs> but especially in Ragnarok. Have you seen Ragnarok? Oh, yeah. Okay. He's really having some moments where he's, you know, he and Hulk having, having a buddy moment. They have a fight and then they have a, a, a beautiful makeup scene where they talk about being the same, being a hothead. Going for, you know, going for the the easy kills and things like that instead of thinking about what the best thing might be. It's like this this beautiful little moment in the middle of this absolutely zany and wonderful movie that is really kind of lives and dies by its sense of humor and sense of sort of visual creativity. But he, he's like kind of, you know, I, I'm feeling it now. He's starting to feel that weight of responsibility. He's starting to feel like, hey, instead of being Mr. Action Man all the time. I realize I'm a dumb jock, and what should I do about that? And it's it kind of great, actually. It's kind of wonderful. That and the, the moments he has with Loki are obviously fantastic, especially towards the end where it's like, you know, realizing your true nature and, and trying to do the best thing you can with it is, uh, that's the sign of a, of, a, of a sensitive badass right there. A sensitive badass thinks about their actions <laughs> and how they affect other people.
1: I think that's been, I think that's one of the reasons why the, Thor movies have kind of low key been some of the best of oh, yes. um, the Marvel Universe. Because, like, you know, from the first movie, Thor is such an asshole <laughs> in that first movie. Like, the, the, the first like 25, 30 minutes of that movie is watching him basically just exult in being a thoughtless, careless badass. And not caring about like who's getting hurt as a byproduct of his actions, not caring about the context in which they take place, uh, not caring about the needs of the people around him actually are and what they're trying to communicate to him. And the entire rest of that movie is him basically being sort of shocked out of being that person and learning through mortality and like life on earth to not be an oblivious asshole. Um and I think Thor like really sorry, uh, Ragnarok really yeah. ends up developing and and building on that work where it's this I the the scene where he and Loki find their father at the start. Um I think it was just gorgeous. I mean there's a beautiful a rare like beautiful quiet moment uh in in a Marvel movie.
0: Yeah. I um I know there was some weirdness around that production wise because it was apparently originally going to be in New York all of those scenes that took place in Norway in that sort of grassy Knoll in Norway were apparently supposed to be in New York. And there was a whole thing about that and I remember I, I actually like used an early trailer for Thor as part of the class I'm teaching. I, I like to do like shot by shot things and movie trailers are perfect cuz they're 2 minutes long and you could talk through every shot and something. And all of it was in New York, and then watching the movie last night, I was like, this is a grassy, this isn't New York. We don't have grassy knolls yeah. in New York, like, <laughs> It was kind of funny, but I was distracted by that a little bit. But I, oh my God, I kind of wish Anthony Hopkins had more time in this movie. Yeah. It seemed a little, it seemed a little rushed, weirdly. Like, okay, he's in like two scenes- and would they only get them for a day or something? Like I get, I get distracted by shit like that uh, when I'm watching movies, especially movies that are on this kind of budget, where you, you think about <laughs> those aspects of production sometimes more than you would in a in a smaller movie. But um, yeah, I uh oh, man, I I I could endorse something else and just tell you how much I love Thor Ragnarok, but I can also tell you that holy fucking just how much it blows Guardians of the Galaxy 2 out of the water. Yeah, no, Guardians
1: 2 sucks.
0: Oh, my God. I only saw that, like, a couple of weeks ago, too. So in the last couple of weeks, I've seen both of these for the first time. And, you know, I'm feeling a lot of Marvel fatigue lately. I think a lot of us are. Uh, I think Black Panther was fantastic, so leaving that out of this. But, um, like, I don't know. The last Avengers movie, I haven't seen the new one, but the the one before this one kind of sucked. I couldn't tell you a quarter of the things that went on in that movie, and I definitely watched it. Um, I've just never been that into Captain America. You know, Tony Stark's okay, I guess. I I don't know. I just, I'm just getting like really fatigued by a lot of it. And that doesn't necessarily go for the TV shows because I love the Punisher and I love uh, Jessica Jones. I think Legion is great. God, you know, uh, there are ups and downs, but (laughs) yeah, I've been a little tired of the movies. So I watched Guardians 2 and was like, yeah, there's a reason I'm tired. Uh, This just feels like, it feels like the headache that you get after just having too much dessert and not having like any kind of meal with it, like it's just like a donut with ice cream on top, with candy on top of that, with fudge on top of that, like it, just like a lot of junk food that didn't have anything to to kind of adhere to it and keep it uh, coherent in any way. Like a lot of fun visuals, sure. Uh, But then Ragnarok, which takes a similar tone, really, like a very, very sort of, you know, goofy and creative and kind of wild and and really going for the comedy. Uh, Again, having those moments, though, like having those quieter moments, having the moments of realization and sort of having actual character arcs and actual character growth. Hey, that sure goes a long way towards making a movie good. Then having a real sense of humor, like Guardians of the Galaxy doesn't really make me laugh. You know, I I enjoyed some of the visual spectacle, but it wasn't like uh, I wasn't like I was sitting there laughing. But Ragnarok had me really, really laughing in many scenes.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, Ragnarok is a much, much better movie. Like, I think (laughs) Guardians 2, like, first of all, I think Guardians 2 is bad for the same reasons I actually think Guardians 1 is kind of a bad movie. Uh, yeah. I think Guardians 1 was unexpected and like it had a lot of like faux style that, like let's face it a lot of it was a lot of its style was basically cribbed from its soundtrack uh, and it was just kind yeah. of you know try it, it tried to sort of like feed off that style by uh, you know osmosis like well if yeah. he's playing this on his Walkman maybe the entire movie feels like a cool like 70s uh, you know, soul adventure yeah. or something like yeah. that. and It's, it's just <laughs> not. Uh, but I think Guardians 2 is actually a really interesting, like counterpoint to this discussion because I think it is badly a movie that wants to be about sensitive badasses and wants to be about like people of great capacity and violence and heroic stature wrestling with their vulnerabilities and feelings but it is also on the fucking nose and all of it is so unearned. Like there are no moments of characters. Like, again, I'll refer to Amos or uh, John Wick where you see characters who are not used to it, struggling to express their emotions or even process them. Um, Whereas guardians two is a movie where a conflict arises and either within 30 seconds or after a brief break and then the start of a new scene and 30 seconds into that scene, you will get somebody basically saying exactly what they're feeling, how they're feeling. <laughs> and then someone else will respond with the thing that makes that problem better superficially. And then it basically goes away. Yeah, uh, It is a movie like jam-packed with unearned growth and connection. And then it wants you to it, – it tries to be like – Ah, isn't this a great, sweet, and uplifting story? But it's just not because none of it was arrived at honestly, right? Like, there's not going to be the payoff you get from watching compared to Thor and Loki making their peace with each other, or at least pretending to, long enough to say goodbye to their dad. You're not going to get that. You're not going to get that moment. Of Thor looking up at the sort of cathedral ceiling of of Asgard, Asgard's palace and seeing sort of the true history that predates even him and realizing that like, you know, like a scene we see echoed in in Black Panther, you've been fed a lot of lies and a lot of omissions about where your power and privilege come from and who paid the costs for those things and those are movies that earn those those moments of conflict and pain, and they don't provide easy answers. In I think mean, Black Panther's case, I'm not sure they provide answers at all. Yeah. Uh, but in Guardians, wait five minutes, head, take two heart to hearts, shoot a bunch of dudes, you'll be fine <laughs> in the morning.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's just weightless. It's just completely weightless and flimsy. I agree. I'm also really not sold. This is this is something else, but I'm just not sold on on the Chris Prattification of Hollywood.
1: I no, like
0: I really I really like him better as the Andy type. Yes, and I'm not saying he has to go back to being Andy or anything like that, but like he was a lot more likable and genuinely lovable as that sort of just doofy happy character than he was as like Mr. Cool Action Star. And I also got, and and tell me if if this is, you know, just off base, but like, I am so sick of just only kind of like hollow nostalgia in movies at this point. Like, Peter Quill's references just don't feel fresh anymore when he talks about, it's not even just that he's talking about Pac-Man or making whatever 80s and 70s sort of references. It's just... It's been so mined at this point, and we live in a post ready player one world now <laughs> that's where it's just like i just I don't know, man. I realized that John Crichton also made references. he would speak Klingon sometimes, uh, but those felt like really nerdy, specific things that weren't just like nerd culture. People will appreciate this eighties reference, yeah, no, uh,
1: it was so yeah. in service to something inter- like intrinsic to Farscape, right? Farscape, Farscape is like, okay, we are making a sci-fi show about the kind, like it's kind of the scream thing, right? It yes. is the character is self-aware of the tropes of the genre in which he finds himself. And yet he still has to react to them and process them through this framework that includes works from the genre. It's, it's similar to uh, Galaxy Quest, in that way, but a lot more, a lot more serious, but no, like it, it makes sense. Like it serves ends to both the story and the characterization in a way that like when John Crichton makes a reference, it's not just to be like, ha ha, you see, you get it. It's actually (laughs) important to how he reads a situation and processes it.
0: Yeah. He's trying to actually make sense of a thing that is inherently nonsensical to a human brain by using those kinds of things like he's he's just using his worldview uh his worldview is changing as he's growing and getting used to this new world so yeah yeah I, that makes sense Farscape is great y'all should go watch it if you can it may be off Netflix at this point but it was for a while
1: it it, it comes it, it's like a comet it comes it comes and goes so it if it's not on right now it will be back yeah. uh but yeah just wait
0: I, for the wheel and it'll be <laughs> sorry that was a very <laughs> obscure one uh <laughs> Obscure talking about Farscape the reference. I, I apologize. The, you know, the way for the wheel is the thing he says right before Zan... Uh, before a thing happens. Um, anyway, now that I'm showing what a useless dork I am with my <laughs> Farscape references, should we talk at all about how this informs female characters? Because it certainly is. I mean, we talked about it a bit. Um, but I am trying to think of sort of badass ladies who also have the this sort of, you know not just a conscience, but like an active desire to understand why they're being violent and an active desire to understand sort of what their motivations are. And I'm I'm struggling a little bit to think of a good example of this specific archetype uh, done by like a female character.
1: Same. Like, (sighs) I mean, I'm looking, like something I was thinking about over the course of this conversation is two Emily Blunt roles. Yes. Uh, Edge of Tomorrow and Sicario. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: And somewhere in between those, I think, is the equivalent of sort of the, the the male archetype we've been discussing for a lot of the show. But with Emily Blunt, they're really two different types of performances. And I feel like we see the split mirrored across a lot of, like, uh, female-led roles. Where one is, Emily Blunt and Edge of Tomorrow is the remorseless, efficient badass. Yes. Like... Part of, the, part of the humor of that movie is how quickly she is ready to just, like, murder people and, <laughs> and like, end problems with a, with a gunshot. Yeah. Um, and then in Sicario, she is somebody who is similarly well-trained. She is a badass. There is no doubt about that. But she has a strong moral compass that as she's plunged into this, like, hyper-masculine, hyper-illegal world of, like, covert <laughs> narco warfare... Um, her badassery is trumped by her morality, and she is starting to realize just how off the rails everything has gotten, and which is why the movie ends with, um, you know, basically like it's a really ugly scene, but her basically being like broken by Benicio del Toro's character, uh, who. Yeah. For reasons passing understanding, and they do not pass understanding. We I mean, we can guess very clearly why this decision was made. But Benicio del Toro's character becomes the star of the next movie that doesn't have Emily Blunt and wasn't directed by Denis Villeneuve. Mm. But yeah, so I mean, like that's 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 where I, that's where my thoughts jump. Is like, I don't know. Does, does Atomic Blonde? This work? I was
0: thinking of that a little bit, but I don't think she's very. She's not really upset with being a bad. That's the impression I got. <laughs> I mean, like she still has fun in her life. She still gets to have sex with a really hot uh, French girl, and that's awesome. Uh, and 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 do kind of James Bondy sorts of things for sure. Uh, but she doesn't seem to be upset about what it says about her that she is such a badass uh, in the way that a lot of these guys are. And I'm wondering if this is just sort of a of a general failing of you know. This is an easy thing to blame, of course, but of the types of roles that women get to play, basically. Do you get to have Do you get to be funny? First of all, very few women get to be funny in mm-hmm. any kind of sort of action role. Like if you're gonna be a badass and a woman, that's pretty much the two things you get to be, right? You don't get to also be funny and hilarious. I'm not saying this never happens, but it feels pretty rare. And in a lot of the movies that we're talking about, the woman the women characters tend to be the most humorless ones, right? I love Valkyrie in Thor Ragnarok and she does have some fun, but like she's kind of a one note character, right? Like, okay, she gets to have a drinking problem and that's treated as funny. And that's not exactly great for a lot of reasons, but it's not exactly like she is, you know, the goofy badass who's having a great time. It's more like she's kind of the straight man and and Thor has a big crush on her. And so she's kind of playing off of that in a lot of ways. Right. And otherwise, she's just a badass, which is cool, but also it's a little one note. Women don't typically get to have the, the Peter Quill kind of role. Gamora in that series is almost completely humorless, right? She's, I guess she dances at the end of that movie, or whatever, and whatever. What the fuck
1: that means, yeah.
0: Exactly. Like, it just feels very much like, okay, if you're a woman in these worlds, you can be competent, and that's awesome. I'm not complaining about that. That is good. But, like, they don't get to be funny and competent. You know what I mean? Or they don't get to be competent and have emotions about their competence yeah. <laughs> in certain ways.
1: I wonder if part of that, like, I think the reason this is an easy thing to do with, uh, like, male characters is that the expectations are there to be subverted. Like, holy right. shit, Chris Pratt's the badass in this one. What? Like, he's, <laughs> this millennial slacker is the action star of this movie. Isn't that hilarious? He's just such a goofball. Um, <laughs> yeah. and that works because we have all these different expectations for what a character like this is going to be like but like yeah. this is really just my like this is just getting more mileage out of the same like Harrison Ford roles we had like you know 30 some years ago where like yeah. uh, you know Indiana Jones is a badass but also he's kind of uh, a nerd and a goof <laughs> Han Solo's hilariously incompetent Um, and that's kind of the joke and that's only intensified. So like we're taking these traditional like action star roles and we put a goofball into it and it's funny, but because we haven't even laid that groundwork with a lot of, uh, like female characters, um, and a lot of, a lot of the great actresses out there, it feels like when the opportunity arises, it has to be this like. Okay, now now the, the the expectation we are subverting is that a woman will have feelings,
0: <laughs> right? Right, which they definitely do with Erin in Farscape for yeah. sure. Like, for, not to go back to Farscape too much, but that that's certainly the thing with her is that she learns to be a little bit more emotional and more in touch with her feelings, and John learns to you know be a better badass in certain ways. They they grow off of each other's opposite gender stereotypes.
1: So this is um, uh, in certain ways, yeah. Claudia Black uh, is just the master of these roles. But yes. I actually was thinking about Chloe in, um, okay. in Uncharted. Because I think there's, there are good things being done in both these spaces uh, in, in the way she characterizes these, these roles. I think Aaron starts out as almost clunkily uh, cold-blooded in yeah. some ways, like they, th- that first season, they are so hammering home the idea that, like, ah, she suppresses all her feelings and doesn't process things the same way that John does. And it's very heavy handed to the point it turns into the. It gets this dynamic in the first season of like, John needs to teach Aaron how to feel. Um, <laughs> right. And the this, this series works ultimately because it moves beyond that. And like, yeah. she comes into her own as a character with agency and self knowledge um, that then contrasts with. I think almost, it almost flips where like Aaron starts having a stronger conscience as John is increasingly in for a penny, in for a pound uh, yep. with the kind of life they live out there. But that arc reminds me a lot of one of my favorite parts of Uncharted 2, which is when Chloe starts out as the bad girl, I suppose. Yeah, uh, yeah the a little bit. Elena. Uh, she's you know a little more sexually available. She's also just like relentlessly treacherous to everyone around her, <laughs> and she just wants to like have cool capers and get rich with Drake, and that's what she wants out of the relationship, or so it appears. And then I think what really like makes that character sing in the end is when he confronts her after her inevitable betrayal. And he's like, How could you do that to me, to us? And she sort of, you know, whirls on him and is like, How could you how could you have my back when you're so business when you're so busy watching everyone else's? Oh. Yeah. And it's this really like good expression of like, actually no, like loyalty matters matters a great deal to this character. Like, we've been misreading it this entire time. Like she views Drake as her partner in ways that he is not like understood or respected. And actually she's feeling things on a very deep level, uh, that she's sort of suppressed or hidden for a lot of the game. And I think that's, that's really cool, but we rarely, well, I didn't play lost legacy. So you can tell me if lost legacy delivers on this, but at least in those contexts, Chloe is not the star of those games.
0: Yeah, I um, I I didn't finish Lost Legacy, but I played through most of it. I, it's pretty good. Um, it's re- it's really like an awesome Uncharted girls' night out uh <laughs> kind of thing. Chloe is uh certainly you know the co-star, but it really is very much Chloe and oh god, what is her name? Why can't scary I? Scary
1: Mercenary I feel- Lady?
0: Yes, Scary Mercenary Lady. I'm just gonna. Uncharted Lost Legacy.
1: Come on. Wow. I was hoping
0: this would, would should show up right away.
1: <laughs> no. Nothing.
0: Nadine. Her name is Nadine. <laughs> Nadine Ross. Um good. Uh it really is kind of the two of them. And then towards the end, not to spoil it, that it's like, oh, there's a there's a guy. Mm, okay. Uh but for the most part of that game, it really is the two of them and it, that's kind of great and fun uh and good. Uh, but it is treated as a side story, not one of the yeah. sort of main games in the series for sure. But does
1: she get to sort of exhibit complexity in in that way that we've been discussing? Yeah.
0: She does. She certainly does. And it's very much. Uh, I don't know if this is really said much in the earlier games, but it's a lot about her dad and sort of her dad was an explorer and he was looking for this lost treasure. And so she gets to be kind of the protagonist uh, that guys get to be all the time where they're trying to live up to their dad's legacy or their you know, yeah. family legacy, that sort of thing, uh, which was kind of cool um, in a way. And she also gets to be pretty funny. Uh, in the game she and Nadine have just wonderful banter as they're sort of driving around or walking around uh, the, the world of the game it is actually very uh, pleasant maybe more so than a lot of the gameplay itself I yeah. really liked their relationship <laughs> quite a bit that was good
1: that's good I'm glad they, they salvaged that because like that because where she's introduced is so much like she is such she is checking so many trope boxes in that first appearance <laughs> in Uncharted yeah. 2 like you know she's you know basically uh you know cherche la femme the character uh <laughs> in, in a lot of in a lot of ways, and I'm pleased they sort of give her a a starring role and and embrace that dimension but yeah i just i don't feel like there are there are nowhere near enough uh characters being allowed to exhibit that sort of complexity, and yeah. I don't know what the solution to that is because like well the solution is to make more stuff that does have characters like that and more diverse yeah. characters, etc. Uh but
0: more buffy, I guess. Something like Buffy. We we need something like Buffy in the modern era.
1: <laughs> we do. I think I think that's the problem, right? Is like we talked before on the show about in some ways it feels like interest in characters and humanity and ordinary people is becoming less and less a thing that exists. In yeah. mainstream entertainment, and so that's the other thing that I think is maybe blotting out the sky a little bit for characters like this, uh, because if you don't exist in a somewhat grounded setting with like relatable concerns, it becomes a little bit harder to balance, uh, you know, balance the heroic with the hu- the humane, I suppose. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. <sighs> Let's have more ladies who are funny and action stars. Or sad and action stars. You know, just action star plus. Let's just go with that. <laughs> Some other trait. It's really interesting <laughs> it
1: to me. We cool. didn't even talk about um, Black Widow.
0: Oh, yeah. We didn't. I think there's a
1: reason for it, but it's interesting to me that like we're talking like, Marvel doesn't have women who, ch- who who fit this role. And like, she she for sure doesn't. Yeah. In fact, she There's actually part has of the, the thing status with Black bullshit. Widow.
0: Yeah, she really does. Part of the thing with Black Widow is that I watched, but could not tell you a fucking thing that happened in the last Avengers movie. Um, other than I think Ultron, not Ultron, but the computer guy no, no, Jarvis, it's Ultron, computer voice oh, guy,
1: uh, Vision.
0: Jarvis, is Jarvis. it Jarvis? Yes, he it's has Jarvis a body now. I know that he has a bot. Oh, okay, maybe he's not a body anymore. I don't fucking know, man. Like it, I really could not. I just could not with that movie. It's not well
1: done. It is not well handled. No,
0: it's not. And there's a lot of things happening that are important. And I'm just like, yeah, bro, that's fine, cool. Anyway, <laughs> to not shit on that. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't know what her her deal is. I just know that she had a very sad backstory. Well, no, they make it entirely it. about kids. Yeah, of course they do.
1: Like that's I mean but she
0: can't have kids, and what 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 is a woman other than a baby machine? What, what is a woman?
1: <laughs> right, and that's not to say I mean, like, you know, her performance in it is fine. you know every, like everyone is really good at their jobs in these movies, uh, but it is striking the degree to which all these other characters have their internal struggles based on, um, I don't know, very specific factors to that. Like, you know, Tony Stark's tense relationship with his father, um, his growing discomfort with, you know, what his legacy is going to be for, for what he's invented and and brought in and created in the world. Um, And then you got black widow who like is super serious and very severe Uh, So she's the hyper competent badass uh, who doesn't like who's all poker face. And then when her sensitive side is exposed, it is immediately followed up by like, well, actually, she's very, very sad because, yes, she doesn't have uh, the capacity to have children. And so she doesn't even see how she can lead a happy, fulfilling life uh, if she can't have kids.
0: It's so frustrating because... Like, I just hate how, and it is certainly a function of just needing to have, obviously, as you said before, more diverse heroes and more heroes and other things and and all kinds of things. I I am interested in that storyline. I'm interested in a character who is sad about not being able to have kids. I just hate that the one, not the one, but one of the extraordinarily few female action heroes has to go down that road. Like... I would like for that to be an option. I would also like for there to be 500 other storylines where other less stereotypical things happen. But I'm, I'm still interested in the I can't have babies and I'm sad, but I want the other 500 things as well. So it's very, like, it will always frustrate me that we, we don't live in that world what? that has that sort of diversity of, of, of storylines and things that can happen without it just being a reductive kind of thing.
1: Yeah, and it's that super... I mean, this is the awkward thing about, like, the politics of representation and such, is that when the representational landscape is shitty, there is so much pressure on the few instances of representation there are to not fuck up by anyone's definition. Right. uh, That it becomes... it's, It's a really impossible burden to bear. But at the same time, like... No when the landscape is when when there are so few Black Widow type characters uh, out there relatively um, I'm not going to be able to restrain myself from kind of rolling my eyes when like she and Banner are having these long heart to hearts about like what does it mean that we can't have kids Um, what does it feel like you know she can't get over like the degree to which she was uh, you know physiologically mutilated in her training uh, to be a Hydra super spy or whatever the fuck she was but it's like there's no like she's kind of like she's the only character that fits that bill in this landscape and that's kind of what they made her about and so yeah
0: completely and it's it's a lot of it just sort of betrays the well a dude wrote this scene (laughs) or like a dude wrote this character this lady character like yeah I'm not saying, again, in every circumstance that it is a male writers, you know. I, I I know there are at least one or two women writers who write some of the Marvel movies, and they're all obviously written by a team. Like, honestly, it, it, this is a production style that requires a massive team yeah. doing everything. So even if somebody isn't credited as a writer, et cetera, et cetera, I, I know it's a complicated project, but a lot of this stuff definitely says to me like yeah this doesn't feel like something that a woman wrote <laughs> from a place of real understanding and, and experience or or like obviously uh we don't have real superheroes so uh, when i'm talking about from experience i mean the emotional experience itself but well, yeah i and
1: at the very least it's not a thing that was made where like speaking to women was a high priority
0: right it's like hey does this does this seem off to you you know, that yeah. kind of smell test uh, seems like, seems like maybe they could have been doing a little more sniffing, you know, a, a sniff, Sniffed a down. sniff can help, you know, a sniff can help. All right. If we're done with our uh, black, yeah. uh, black Widow segment, I suppose uh, we should go into our weekend correspondence. Are you ready for some letters? I am. Electronic letters. That's what Thor calls them. <clears throat> Dear R&D, despite many hours of Warcraft 2 and StarCraft, I was late to Warcraft 3 and really only picked it up because it was going to feature uh, at my friend's next LAN party. My plan was to play through the human phase, uh, play through human phase, uh, the campaign through some sort of inadequate preparation that didn't really work. I got as far as a level I can't name because Rob has recently written about it, the culling of Stratholme. Is it Stratholme, Stratholme?
1: Stratholme,
0: yeah. Stratholme. In that level, your Paladin declares that, essentially, the only way to save the town is to destroy it, and you control him as he storms through the town, smashing down buildings, slaughtering the resident zombies. That's a stupid plan, I thought, as the introductory cutscene ran. Then as I played it, I realized that the only route to success isn't to slaughter the zombies, but to slaughter the residents before they become zombies. But I couldn't do it. I couldn't face doing it. So I stopped. Warcraft isn't a branching choice game. There's no alternative route. To continue the campaign, you've got to finish that level. I never finished that level. For me, that's where Warcraft 3 ended. I've surely slaughtered thousands of monsters and zombies and aliens and otherwise done reprehensible things in other games without the merest hint, uh, sorry, done those things without, uh, the merest hint of a valid justification. And I know those electronic peasants aren't real, so it doesn't really matter anyhow. But I couldn't bring myself to do something that was both stupid and wrong. Have you ever ceased playing because you couldn't bring yourself to do what the game's fiction required? Cheers, Adrian. Oh, boy. That's a very good question.
1: Yeah. I feel like I... I feel like I have. I feel like there are games I have sort of been unable to continue with because I was finding it, like, just too morally compromised. Um...
0: Yeah, I'm, this seems like a a familiar sensation as well, and I'm just having a hard time thinking of a specific example of one. What's a game in which you play a total asshole who does bad things, but the tone is not there for it? Because I guess this is a tone question as well. Yeah. Yeah. because you can play a game where you're, you know, like a, a Mortal Kombat or something where it's like you're doing ridiculous damage to another human being and breaking their skull. But it's such an over-the-top sort of farce that it's like, all right, whatever. There's no real stakes here. Versus it felt like for Adrian here, there were stakes. This was just doing something so wrong and bad. And it's like, no, it doesn't feel right. Like, there's a feeling. There's a sniff test here as well, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I think. Um, so. I'm not sure I've played a Hitman game since, like, Hitman 2. Mm-hmm. Um, and in part, like I, I, like, I can't remember for sure if it's Hitman 2, but there is a Hitman game, because there's a million of them at this point, where Agent 47 is hiding out in a church, basically. He's found a kindly priest, I think somewhere, like, in Italy. And he's gone into hiding, and is just trying to put his murderous past behind him. And over the course of that game, like the, right away, your your buddy is kidnapped by like your former employers. You're sort of back in action. You, you you have to become an assassin again to get him off the hook. And the whole game is about trying to get out from under this, uh, you know, the thumb of, of this organization and basically try to save your buddy and then get back to being independent and free of your old life. So you go through and you murder a bunch of people. It's a hitman game. And at the end, you—if I recall—like you actually do succeed in saving the guy. Uh, he might die at the end, but I think he actually he he survived. Like your priest lives. But at yeah. the end, Agent Forty Seven is still like, "Well, I'm so evil. Like this is just this is not a life that's for me. Like I am a ruthless killer, and I know that now, and I can't stay here. And so he goes off. And I never played a game in the series after that. I think in part because I was like dramatically I was less interested in the character after that. It was like well okay I guess that's where we're at. Like you, you, you <laughs> try like because as long as the story was about like him trying to work through the implications of what he was doing and trying to get out of it with at least a shred of conscience intact. I was on board. But when the game ended with like well I should just uh, all I'm good for is murder and slaughter so I'm going to go do that now I was kind of done um and like a lot of the series subsequent to that sort of seemed like he was also like knocking off former allies for dubious reasons uh like people who were friends so I just I just kind of peaced out uh because I was not on board with agent 47 anymore <laughs>
0: Yeah. Talking about Hitman, I, I have not played much of any Hitman. Uh I used to watch a lot of let's plays yeah. for it though. And I don't remember if it was watching Austin play or if it was just watching sort of another let's play. I found that game really fascinating. Um and there's a way you can kill someone I don't remember what map, but by essentially by poisoning their coffee. And it really turned me off. It made me feel like if I were playing this game, I wouldn't be able to do this challenge because I, I just I'm so violently bothered by the idea of poisoning another human being. Stabbing, you know, shooting, killing them with magical plasmids, you know, whatever, that's all fine. But poisoning that's just feels like the just cold heart of evil that is just so wrong in every situation, every I also have like a weird complex with nausea and anxiety. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah.
0: Like it's a truly extreme, like I have I have you know, panic attacks, and they're, they always sort of come on as a feeling of overwhelming nausea, and, like, it's why I don't really drink anymore. There's a whole bunch of stuff sort of tied in to my own weird psychology with this, but I just feel like I could never cause a human being to feel that way, or I would just lose my humanity. <laughs> like, and there's just something about poisoning that feels so evil uh, that I just... I don't think I could do it, even in a game, even in a gaming context. Or if I did, I would feel really, really bad about it for a while. <laughs> so, that's, I guess it's a hypothetical, yeah. but it's it's real.
1: <laughs> I struggled a lot with um, Ghost Recon Wildlands, and <laughs> like <laughs> maybe I'll go back to it at some point because like there is a cool game in there. Um, yeah, but there is also no way around like everything in that game is screaming you are in someone else's country fighting what sure looks like an illegal off the books war yep and you are laying waste to you are you are basically like touching off like an incredible wave of uh narco conflict violence in this country in this region um and everyone doing it is just coming across like the biggest asshole about it, like yeah, they enjoy it on some level there there's not much like regret or reflection in wildlands it's very much like. <laughs> we're here to sell the score and kick ass and that's kind of it. And so you're playing it and it's like a gorgeous it's a gorgeous looking game. It's you know, it's an Ubisoft open open world game. It's it's beautiful. Uh but you're yeah. playing it and like there's not a moment I'm playing it where like things are like everything is screaming like this is fucked up. Like you need to get out. Yeah. You need to get out. God, yeah. It feels like almost like
0: the video game equivalent of something's crawling all over your skin and it just doesn't feel right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that that very weird but very unsettling sensation of mm, I don't know about this. <laughs> For sure.
1: Um running a little long. Should we get to our endorsements? Our, yeah, let's our do that. Projects?
0: Yeah, let's definitely do that. And mine will be quick yeah. uh, because I already kind of talked about it a little bit. Uh, do you want to go ahead and go first with your weekend project?
1: Uh, yeah, um, I finally saw uh, The Last Jedi.
0: Oh, oh, do tell. Do tell. I think. What you think?
1: I think it's excellent. Like, I thought it was a superb movie. Um, I think. I was really surprised at how good Adam Driver's performance is yeah uh, he is it's a it's a fine line he walks of like you need to be able to sympathize with him or, or at least have some empathy for the things he's dealing with but also he irrevocably like damns himself over the course of this movie um if, if there's any doubt if the, if the force awakens left any doubt that this character was like still salvageable Uh, he proves like at every turn that like he's actually even more toxic and monstrous and selfish than it appeared and Driver brings a lot of that out and across and makes this a character that like you almost want to believe can be saved but like 100% for sure cannot be um I like. I I think there are so many great moments in that movie. I think it is a a spectacular looking movie. Uh, But I, I just the themes of the ways it sort of reconsiders the story of the original Star Wars films is really fascinating to me. The way that like Luke, when you meet Luke Skywalker even he sort of reached the conclusion that like maybe the story we told in those first movies, maybe the story I was a part of wasn't actually as unambiguously triumphant and good as we thought. Like maybe there was a <laughs> tremendous amount of arrogance and blindness still built in to that story. Um, And so the, the whole movie feels like a, an exploration of like the meaning of that original trilogy and a reconsideration of it. That said, I do kind of understand. um, There's also never been a Star Wars movie that shreds any notion of plausibility about the rules of the Star Wars universe (laughs) as gleefully as this one does. Like, yeah. The original, the, the, the original movies, they played super fast and loose with time and space. Like no, no scientific laws were obeyed uh like even the universe's own rules barely made any sense but it was all sort of hand-waved away and you could feel that like maybe that star wars operated according to at least some rules last jedi is literally like their vision of space feels <laughs> like it is the size of Rhode Island like like yeah. the rebel <laughs> fleet is running away from the 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 uh what is it, the new order or whatever the fuck they are yeah um yeah. And so they're fleeing through, like, the edge of space trying to find safety. Now somehow the Rebellion's down, like, ten people. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but where do we go for help? Any number of places that are, like, literally within five minutes of where <laughs> our fleet is running for safety. Um, it's including, like, Luke's, like, hidden base. Like, literally everything is five minutes away. Uh <laughs> it just feels like it is the most nakedly contrived Star Wars movie. So I can also kind of get like why people, if you're some person who's invested in like the rules of this universe and like played TIE fighter and you know, all that shit and like, but like tried to get into the backstory and the lore and the rules of this universe, all that is out the window. Like everything moves at the speed of plot distant space none of these things matter like this is a tiny universe
0: yeah <laughs> i uh yeah i i couldn't agree more uh there are a lot of things that make no fucking sense in that movie but i just love i love it for how subversive it is and i have i've always been shocked that like they were allowed to make this movie in certain ways like wow this shits on all of this stuff in a really really wonderful obvious way and oh man that is fucking great i i had a not really a fight but a discussion about this movie with my sister's boyfriend uh he really hates it <laughs> i won't go into it but um for all the reasons i love it he he Hates it and thinks, it, you know, it shits upon a, uh, the foundations of Star Wars. And I'm kind of like, yeah, man, that's the point. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is definitely shitting on the foundations of Star Wars and making a new name for itself and doing some new and interesting things. And it's not perfect. And it does stumble. And some of the humor is a little weird, for sure. I definitely that one definitely I, I hear like about some of the humor being like a, a little Marvel it, in ways, uh, without it actually like necessarily landing, yeah, which is fair. I, I some of it's fine, I think, and some of it's like a little. I actually really liked sarcastic Luke. I think, sarcastic yeah, most of it Angry landed Luke for me. Actually, was great. Yeah, <laughs> it's more the like kind of sight gag stuff. Uh, it feels a little corny sometimes, but I'm you know you know me. I corny yeah. is I'm fine. I'm fine with corny. It does not bother me. But uh, yeah, God, it's that's a cool movie. It's a good. A very good subversive movie. I mean, for a Star Wars movie.
1: No, and I like, and I do love just how nakedly it makes um Adam Driver's uh Kylo Run is Star Wars fandom personified. Yes. And the movie like yes. makes that text just explicit. It was already in The Force Awakens, like this is not a new thing, but like hundred mm-hmm. percent that moment where he totally fucking blows it and basically uh-huh. like shows his true face. Uh oh my god, he, to Daisy Ridley. Uh what's her character's name? Fuck.
0: Oh, uh uh Ray.
1: Ray. God. I was like, Jin? No, that's <laughs> that's Rogue One. Uh but yeah, when he when he when he's like don't you want to know who like who you are in the story? You're nobody. You don't you don't mean anything in the story. You're you're he's you're,
0: every man on the internet. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He is. He is every Like, angry, disaffected white man on the internet talking to a woman who is talented. That is exactly what that moment is.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And the fact that, like, he is obsessed with the bloodlines and the connections and the history of this universe. and Keeping
0: things pure.
1: Yeah. And then you have Luke sort of retreated from it all being like, actually, maybe this is all bullshit. Like maybe we were maybe we were <laughs> wrong, but like I love his entire thing of like the Jedi sucked. It's yep. <laughs> like like yep. we, like when they were at the height of their power, they produced Darth Vader they like they they completely fucked everything up, and the universe is paying for it, and really, this entire order may have been worth nothing all along. We may not even have understood the force uh properly, uh, which is a cool. Thing to sort of bring to the fore because it was always lying there right like this entire oh no you have to have this like monk like devotion and uh, you know self-denial and what do you know we keep generating like weirdly unhealthy twisted ex-Jedi um, <laughs> no I love that shit I also loved 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 the Luke that we meet on the planet where he's hiding, and then the Luke that appears in the final showdown with uh, Kylo Ren is the idea of movie Luke. That, like, for that final showdown, he is 100% the older version of the guy he was in Return of the Jedi. And Kylo Ren is just, like, obsessed with, like, destroying him and, like, consuming his power. (laughs) And, like, oh, it's so good.
0: Yeah. Goddamn. Alright, how did you feel about the Leia stuff before I... Before we move on. Um, did that have any special bearing for you? Because I was ready to sob my fucking eyes out the second I saw her on the screen.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean. I think it is the best performance she's been allowed to give in a Star Wars movie.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. And... also i 'm kind of i don 't know it 's weird the the entire specter of like her passing was hanging over this entire thing like the entire oh. movie you're like so are they gonna like is she gonna die in this one like what are they gonna yeah. do about the fact that like she 's not with us anymore um yeah. and so i don 't know it's this it's it's it 's a weird thing it it uh it it hangs over that performance but also makes it more beautiful um yeah. And the fact that so much of this movie is about her like laying things to rest and saying goodbye to things, um, is feels really poignant.
0: Yes, drying my eyes over here. Totally. Um, <laughs> did you have any other Last Jedi thoughts?
1: I like the lightsaber fight.
0: Yeah, it's like, really <laughs> good. Where it's so good. Kylo odd. Ren and so Ray just like
1: level that throne room. Uh, I was like, this is pretty good. I, I like that. It's also
0: kind of hot. Yeah. I don't know if I'm weird uh, for thinking that, but it's kind of hot. It's sort of, I don't know. Somebody wrote a really great piece about this that's like, obviously, this is like a, you know, basically a Disney movie. <laughs> you know, Star Wars movies are not uh, rated R, but this was like the closest thing to a sex scene we'll ever get in a Star Wars movie. Oh, that's a good thing, point. It's just like, they're going to town, you know, kind of thing. Like,
1: <laughs> two oh, hot no. young people
0: with strong emotions or having an intensely physical sweaty scene. It was very,
1: very sweaty. It was extremely sweaty. It
0: was so sweaty, but also a really great action. It scene, is. So. It is.
1: I just love the, um, I just love that I, I, his name is just immediately passed out of, my head whoever the snoke snoke fuck that guy but the entire (laughs) scene you're like man this guy sucks god what an arrogant asshole i really hope the thing's about to happen i really hope the thing's about to happen and then it happens it just happens and the entire series is like yeah actually he's not the main snoke isn't actually important here
0: it's so fucking good I really need to see it again. I saw it on, you know, the, the day it came out and I haven't seen it since and I just, oh, I loved it and I'm so glad you saw it and also enjoyed it and had a good time. Uh, I'll be super quick with mine because we've already talked quite a bit uh, about Thor Ragnarok today, but that would definitely be my weekend project. So again, I'm, st- I'm still not done with Jessica Jones season two and I love it and I've just recently heard that a lot of people thought it sucked and I'm just like, what the fuck? Uh, so I feel like I have to watch the whole uh, season before I will, you know, yeah. get my thoughts on it, but but I'm still loving it at like episode nine, so I don't know if the critics here are just wrong, just plain wrong, uh, but Thor Ragnarok gets my wholehearted uh, weekend project uh, thumbs up, partially uh, for all the, the stuff we've already said about it, but also just the production design in that movie is so much fucking fun. Um, I tweeted about this a little bit last night, but a lot of the fun of the Thor movies and they do go back and forth. And the second one was a lot more grim, dark, and serious. Uh, I still liked it. Uh, the first one was basically a really goofy romantic comedy in like a high school yeah. like costume drama playset set with millions and millions of dollars behind it. And this one does go back to a lot of that uh, in, in wonderful ways. And and again, has the weight that we talked about, has or does earn its sort of emotional moments uh, and has some emotional weight to it, but also is so much fun fucking fun to watch uh, especially after maybe a little bit of uneasiness with the pacing at, at the very beginning it is just such a visual pleasure to watch this movie it is so much fun to watch Kate Blanchett oh be like a sex demon basically <laughs> like just walking around with her horns killing everybody like there is no depth to that character would it have been cool to give Kate Blanchett a fucking phenomenal performer maybe a little bit more to do Yes, that would have been cool. But I'm also not going to complain cuz it was so much fun to watch her just munch on the scenery, just just chew it up and enjoy it was do you know what it reminded me of? A little bit of Eddie Redmayne in Jupiter Ascending. Like a little bit of like pure evil, a performer who is way above the the role as mm-hmm. it is written and just having a fucking blast just having so much fun being just the embodiment God, of evil. The
1: scenes where she's trying to feign interest in what her new henchmen have to say <laughs> or like offer oh, yes. is so like this few moments where she becomes like dimly aware that like there's other people in the room and maybe she should <laughs> talk to them but like she doesn't actually want to but feels she has to God those scenes yes. are so fucking priceless.
0: Oh, uh, Let me stop you there. <laughs> They're so fucking good she's so fucking good oh and jeff goldblum in this movie is a delight to behold that whole the entire and it's like almost like a third of the movie uh sort of running time on the the trash planet is so much fun god it is just so goofy honestly so much of this movie is what guardians of the galaxy wants to be like having fun in space doing weird shit in space being colorful in space (laughs) but it it does it so much better and so much more fun um so yes those things uh very very much highlights for me and and of course uh uh, hulk actually gets some good stuff to do in this movie and that hasn't happened in a very long time hulk has not had much to do (laughs) in quite a while and hulk is actually like a really likable character normally it's sort of like bruce banner is the character and hulk is just the thing that happens that moves the plot forward but here hulk himself is actually a person with feelings and a buddy like a cool hot friend that he likes to play basketball with or whatever i don't know they're throwing a ball around it's something um and it's nice to see hulk actually have feelings and thoughts and desires and and you know actually have a little bit of feeling himself and they have that wonderful wonderful moment right after the sort of fight that he and thor have and they kind of make up and they're kind of like yeah you know hulk is like raging fire and thor is like well, i'm i'm kind of like fire too you know having that like really cute yeah. sort of buddy bro moment <laughs> fire. is so cute it's, it's cute and it's and it's lovable and it's likable so yeah really really <laughs> enjoyed that movie so much
1: point break
0: <laughs> oh yes yep that's really good. That is really good. I also really liked Valkyrie. I don't think she really has much to do either. No, but she's cool. But she's cool. I really liked her. I liked. You know, God,
1: who's the um? Oh, the dude who was in *Dread*. Uh, who's the, like the one henchman who survives and then Carl Oh,
0: Carl Urban. Karl in Carl Urban. Movie? Fuck Search or something. He's so good. I forget his name in the movie. Yeah, he's, he's great. Such in
1: He's such a Cohen Brothers piece of shit in that movie. Yeah. Just like, oh, uh, it's so good.
0: <sighs> yeah. I, I also would have liked to see Idris Elba have a little more to do. There, There is a, a lot of great things in this movie, and it's a sign, I think, of how much fun this movie was that I just wanted more of it. And it was a full, good two-hour-long movie Yeah, that, you know, Cate Blanchett, Idris Elba, both amazing in what they do, but we didn't get enough of them kind of thing. I, you think,
1: know? Yeah, yeah. I think my one sort of regret for this movie is that um, it never does pay off on the various, like they had built a really good version of Asgard in this universe. Yeah. And I liked, like, I'd always kind of wondered, like, what's the, what's the arc going to be with like the Warriors 3 and yeah. uh, Idris Elba's uh, Heimdall? And uh, Lady Sif, and all of that is basically like just wiped out, uh, without they're kind of a now. second thought.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is honestly a little sad. Um, they're kind of just dead now, yeah, like yeah, it's not that
1: great, no, and like and dead in like the most red shirt ass ways,
0: yeah. Only one of them got anything like uh, a, a warrior's death, right. really. Uh, and that was fine, I guess. Uh,
1: but... Uh, yeah, like...
0: I, they they were that, that sort of high school costume drama aspect of this that I love so much. Uh, on Of all the Thor movies. Like, very self-aware, cheesy, we're wearing goofy wigs, you know, kind of yeah. thing. Uh, and, like really maybe not the coolest looking costumes.
1: No. Uh, so
0: I, I am a little sad that they're kind of out of the picture now.
1: Yeah, so. like I liked that aspect in the first. The entire silly Shakespearean nonsense. Yes. Uh, the I'm curious where that would have <laughs> led. And also I'm a little like now Thor's in space and God only knows how that's going to work out because like.
0: And he looks like a pirate. Marvel
1: in space tends to be kind of iffy. Yeah,
0: true. I hope he finds another nice planet and makes it a cool Asgard. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, that'd be cool. I'd be cool with that. Anyway, Thor Ragnarok is fucking great and it restored a little bit of uh, enthusiasm for finally seeing uh, the new Avengers
1: movie.
0: <laughs> I I should just see it. Even if I don't, care for it that much i guess i should see it just to
1: i am just so fun am so fully at that stage <laughs> of my life where i'm like oh but we're yeah. going to the theater is hard i
0: know it requires leaving yes the house or leaving the office and that you know that's tough man
1: and <laughs> arguably i've got a better setup at home
0: you probably do. Honestly, you probably do. Like if you are a person who cares about sound and you know, actually has made those adjustments to your house, it's probably better because you also don't have, you know, a bunch of 14-year-olds throwing popcorn at the screen. Not that that's like
1: Yeah, or like movie I go too. Emergency <laughs> exit lights like shining weird light on the screen because the theater is too small. And so yeah. like that's a thing that has happened in a lot of theaters lately.
0: And that guy that's going to be on his phone. I don't know, man. You know? Yeah.
1: India yeah, probably should see him.
0: <laughs> uh, probably should. I think I will uh, relatively soon. But I also kind of want to see Deadpool too. So, we'll see. That's going to be a whole other discussion though. Uh, for another day. Uh so we should we should probably sign off. We should probably sign off and uh, and go back to doing those other things. Uh so thank you for your weekend project. And uh, with that, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs
1: Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at IdleWeekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at IdleWeekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at IdleWeekend.
0: We really do appreciate it if you tell your friends tell your family tell your brother who's a trickster god tell your mom oh not your mom your sister who's the god of death uh about our podcast you know if, even if they aren't you know gods and goddesses it's cool what an interesting we'll slip anyway was. i'm
1: curious what, impl- what it implies
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. i mean he's old enough to be her mother yeah. isn't she isn't she like thousands of I mean, years old? old i don't know how she's, old she's thor, thor like is so old. yeah so i don't i don't know how old thor is i really don't um and slip. Anyway, please tell your friends and family and people that you like or, or think would enjoy our podcast about us because it really does help us out so much. And if you also go ahead and give us a little rating on iTunes, that helps us out so much as well. And we really do appreciate it. It means the world to us. It means the nine worlds to us. Oh, there we nice. go. Uh, so for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of idle weekends.